It's an honor that each of us have been given this Sunday afternoon to assemble as we are, and to do so with an attitude of pleasing our Heavenly Father, and to do that in a way that not only does that, but also encourages each other. We consider each other to provoke to love and good works, as we noticed this morning in Hebrews 10, 24. And so tonight, I hope you have your Bible handy, and as we look at a few things that you have asked, tonight's our question and answer session for this month, the 12th one this year. And so I thought we did a pretty good job maintaining that even during the midst of that COVID disruption that we suffered back early in this calendar year. 1 John will be, in fact, the setting for many of our questions tonight. As always, let me begin by stating a word of thanks to those who have placed questions in that box back there. I try to check that on a regular basis, and so you have selected the questions that, are, that determine the setting for the lesson tonight. As we do that, may I say that... There was a sheet of paper that was presented in the box again some some number of weeks ago. And so three of the questions tonight were from some singular person, or the person who wrote that asked three different questions. And so that will be the setting for three of the four questions tonight. In so doing, let me say to you that I thought it a little bit wise to do things a bit differently this evening. Since those three questions all come from the same text... I'm going to do things a little differently. I'm going to invest the first section of the lesson tonight as a background for this passage. I thought that was needful as we attempt to do justice to the questions I asked and to the background that went into them. With that being said, here are the introductory comments that shall in fact get us going. As I've already mentioned, three questions will be drawn from 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. And with that said... Let's at least take a moment and revisit the book of 1 John. What's the setting for that book? What's the basis for some of the things that are shared? And how might we, how might we use them as a benefit and as a blessing for us? First of all, as you and I are probably aware, 1 John is a somewhat unique book in the New Testament. I know you may be thinking, well, aren't all of them in some way unique? And the answer, of course, is yes. But there's something rather different about 1 John. Upon reading it, it's rather clear that some of the things presented in many ways seem almost surprising. He mentions more than once the fact that there are some people who claim Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Really? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Have you ever heard anybody argue that the Lord never came in the flesh? Well, the point is there were some people back then making that claim. But it forms a basis it forms a springboard that not only John used to attack that false teaching of that day, but I might suggest to you it forms a basis from which you and I can attack sometimes those falsehoods that may appear in your life or mine. That is to say, false teaching presented to us. With that, notice at the top of that slide. I say again, there was an error that had come to be rather prevalent by the time you reach the latter stages of the first century. So remember, the church started in A.D. 30, and as that happened, roughly 55 to 60 years later, already by that time, a rather notable false teaching had arisen. And this false teaching, as you can see, at least among the things it claimed was this, that Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. 
They claim he came. They admit that. But they strongly asserted he did not come in the flesh. And here's why they said that. There was a basis by which there was an assertion the flesh is evil. The spirit is good. May I say again, the spirit is good because God is spirit. So the spirit's good. But the flesh is not. The flesh is motivated by the devil. It's motivated by evil connected to the things of this life. It just simply is not holy. It's not good. Therefore, they claim the Son of God could not have come in the flesh because the flesh is evil. Now, based upon that, they clearly could easily teach a lot of things, not the least of which was this. There is a powerful distinction between the spiritual part of man and the fleshly part of man. And they use that to, in fact, allow a lot of immoral activities. And so someone can make the claim, look, I might engage in sin, but that's only the flesh doing it. My spirit is not engaging in it, the person might say, and therefore I'm fine with God. Now you and I know that's nonsense. We can begin to see there's just error in that. You can't live this way. And one of John's John's strongest arguments is he starts the book. He hits this teaching head on. Let me read the first three verses of the first chapter and see what you think. With that as a background, listen to how this little epistle begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Does that sound to you like they had touched Jesus? Does it sound to you like they literally knew He was here in the flesh? Let's read on to verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. One of the first dramatic teachings that comes to you and me then is this. It's near the bottom of that slide. John emphatically says this, You cannot hold untrue thoughts about the nature of Christ and somehow think that you have fellowship with God. It just cannot be. Did you note again the wording of verse 3? That which we've seen and heard declare we unto you. Jesus came in the flesh. Don't ever think He didn't. He was here in the flesh. He knew all the temptations we face. He knew everything from weariness to hunger to death. When His good friend Lazarus passed away, Jesus wept. He cried in sorrow. He knew everything that you and I ever face. And that's what allows us the realization He did it without sin. And He can always be there for you and me to provide the necessary encouragement the necessary guidance. But did you note the latter part of that same verse, verse 3? Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot hold untrue thoughts about the nature of the Christ and somehow think that God will overlook it. John said our fellowship is with both of them. You can't have one without the other. Let's close that slide then like this. 
not only in that text, turn over one chapter to chapter 2, verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you which we have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and the Father. Three verbs are used in that passage, isn't it? Abide, remain, continue. We have to be steadfast. We have to hold on, as we noticed this morning, to the nature of the truth of God. We can't stray from it and hope to rest upon what we once had had. Finally, look at chapter 5, verse 20, near the end of the book. And we know that the Son of God is come. He came and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, all of this addresses a false teaching that had become prominent in John's day. However, in the midst of all of that, we find chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And in the midst of that are these verses. I know John read them in our hearing a moment ago. Allow me to read them again. If any man see of his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them, and sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. The opening question then for the lesson tonight reads as follows. In 1 John 5, 16, is this verse stating a Christian can pray to God to ask for a Christian brother or sister be forgiven of a sin, a sin that does not lead to death? So do you see the thought the person's asking? It's a very good question. All of them tonight, as always, are extremely good questions. The person says, in light of this verse we just read, so can you and I pray to God that some brother or sister who is guilty of a sin not unto death, can we pray to God that the person will be forgiven and there's nothing else the person has to do? Nothing else needs to be asserted or said or in any way acted upon. Our prayer alone, as long as it's a sin not unto death, will lead to the person's forgiveness. Is that what this teaches? Well, in a minute, we're going to answer the question. But we've got another slide to get through first. What is the sin unto death? Clearly, there are two references made in that verse. There's a sin unto death. There's a sin not unto death. What's the difference? How do you know whether a sin falls into one category or the other one? Let's take a minute and see if we can't decipher, determine, evaluate. What is the sin unto death? Now, follow through some of these proceedings with me and see if we can't reach a conclusion about this. First of all, we can readily agree what sin is. Same book, chapter 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. First lesson, we immediately learn, isn't it? Sin is a transgression of God's law. Sin is thus not merely a speculative opinion on someone's part that they don't feel as though things are as they should be. Well, I admit, sin may disturb our conscience, and it should. 
as long as we've trained it correctly. But the fact is, sin is abruptly a transgression of God's law. It's that simple. Now, with that in mind, consider this. We know what sin does. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but then, three chapters later, exactly. Romans six twenty three, The wages of sin is death. If sin isn't dealt with, it'll cause death. Now, we know immediately it brings about spiritual death. Separation from God, Isaiah 59, 1. But may we say that separation becomes permanent at the time of death. At the time when one can no longer choose to do anything about it, that separation has become permanent eternally. Therefore, it is imperative that sin be forgiven. It's imperative that it be, in fact, redeemed from it. And aren't we thankful that this book then says things by which that can take place? Turn back to chapter 1, same book, verses 7, 8, and 9. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. There we have it. Although sin separates, and although it causes a division between us and God, there is a means whereby it can be cleansed. And you'll notice what it was, the blood of Christ. And that's the only agent ever identified in the New Testament by which sin can be cleansed. Let's read on, though, to verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at this point, we surely can be quite thankful that although all are guilty of sin, there is a means of its forgiveness. It involves the blood of Christ, and oh, how powerful that thought is. We've established then two incredible points. What sin is and how it can be forgiven, at least in the sense of what agent must be accessed. Now the next point. That should lead to a great question. If there is a access to the blood of Christ, and that of course can lead to the forgiveness of sin, then what must be a sin unto death? You'll notice on the slide, I've already invited you to give consideration to what it would appear to be the conclusive answer in the Bible. The sin unto death, may I suggest to you is this. This reminds us very clearly, doesn't it, of the Lord's teaching in Matthew 12. When He spoke about what some call the unpardonable sin. Now there the Lord simply called it the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He said, the one guilty of that, whatever that is, apparently is in a condition, a situation that in that state is doomed to eternal separation. Notice the Lord Himself said, if you blaspheme me in this life, well, that'll be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it'll never be forgiven. That means you'll die lost. And it means you'll remain that way through all eternity. John seems to be talking about exactly the same thing Jesus was. What is it? The bottom of the slide gives you an appreciation that I hope we can build upon in this way. 
the unpardonable sin, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the consideration here of a sin unto death, may I suggest to you there isn't anything in this that is not what we should easily understand from the Bible. The only sin that won't be forgiven is the sin that a person won't repent of. It's that simple. Any sin can be forgiven as long as we'll repent of it and do according to the Bible what God demands we do concerning it. Now with that in mind, would you go ahead and look then at a few essences related to the opening part of this, this first question. As we close that slide and give our attention to this question, um, allow me to read it again. Doesn't it sound rather tempting based on the text? Is this verse teaching that a Christian can pray to God to ask for a Christian brother or sister to be forgiven of a sin that's not unto death? No, that's not what that text is teaching because of the conclusion we just reached and a host of others that we're now about to consider. Let's start down the list. First of all, this sin unto death that we've already at least spoken about, the nature of that, let's pause at this point and say this. Sins, you see, are of a quite different character in terms of public presentation. Isn't it true? There are some sins that are easy to identify. That is to say, if a brother or sister is doing certain things, it's easy to note that there's sin involved in that. For example, perhaps at work tomorrow, there's a co-worker who you easily notice that this person is stealing from the company. Maybe they're taking things out of the stock room that are to be used for the purpose of the activities ongoing at the work of that particular business. But this person's putting them in his or her lunchbox and taking them home. So maybe they're stealing computer equipment. Or maybe they're stealing jump drives. Well, again, that's easy to understand. It would be easy to talk to that brother and say, you know, I saw what you put in your lunchbox. You know that's wrong. You're guilty of stealing. And as a person who is a faithful Christian, you know you can't do that. Easy then to see in a case like that. That kind of sin's easy to see. And it'd be easy to identify what has to be done. So in a case like this, it's clear the person could be forgiven of that sin. He could put back what he had taken. He could ask God to forgive him. And he could make it known to that person who saw him, Look, what I did was wrong, and I apologize. I want you to know I'm not going to do it again. Well, it's easy to see that has been forgiven, and all can be well. But it is true the person saw it. But isn't it true there's a lot of sins that you and I will never see? In 1 Corinthians 5.11, covetousness is a sin. In Galatians 5, it will doom my soul. Is it easy to look at another person and tell he or she is covetous? That's not so easy. What about idolatry? Idolatry is a sin. It'll doom my soul. Is it easy to look upon another person and conclude that there is something in that person's life that rests in more importance than God? That may not always be easy. In fact, it may oftentimes be near impossible. I would just ask that we keep in mind when this makes reference to you see a brother sin a sin not unto death, some sins you and I will never openly see in a direct way. 
may we not make a blanket statement out of this and use it to teach thus what cannot be easily concluded. But you'll note about the middle of that slide. Let's come very quickly to note this. Again, the person perhaps was asking a good question. In light of the way John words this, If I see a person, a brother or sister, sinning a sin not unto death, can I pray to God, get their forgiveness, and never do anything else about it? The answer is no. Why? Because God conditions forgiveness upon repentance. He does, doesn't He? That person is going to have to repent. The person cannot be forgiven of something of which he or she will not repent. Look at some verses such as these. Acts 8.22 When Simon the sorcerer, you remember, he had seen there was a transferring of power of the Holy Spirit by Peter and John, and he wanted that power. And he said, I'll like to buy it from you of money. Peter said, you can't do that. And you're being guilty of sin. Now, may I say at that point, Peter did not stop, go off in private, pray for Simon's forgiveness, and thus presume that all was well. Notice he confronted Simon. You are not right with God, he said. You've got to repent, he said, Acts 8.22. And you've got to approach God in prayer, pursuing forgiveness. And it was then that Simon said, would you pray for me? And that's exactly the pattern that you and I do when a Christian is one who has found him or herself separated from God, we urge them to again make confession of that error, but they must repent of it themselves. We can't repent for them. Nobody can repent for anybody else. But in so doing, we are then happy to pray to God on their behalf, aren't we? So the answer to the first question is no. Now as you continue further on that slide, you and I can certainly do this. Suppose we are aware that some brother or sister has become guilty of sin. Surely we don't just pray to God for their forgiveness. If we've just learned, that's not going to be effective. What ought we to do? Confront them in a loving and tactful way. Bring it to their attention. You do realize that what you've just done or what you've just said is not consistent with the Word of God. Would you please change? Let me read you the verses which lead me to that conclusion. You realize you need to make some changes here. You see, that's what needs to be done. Isn't it true that Jesus even made mention in Matthew chapter 18 that again, in terms of a brother or sister who's gone astray, you approach them in private. But you bring it to their attention. You let them know that that which has been done and that which is being done is not the thing that's right. So our first answer, no. What about the next question? As you look at the second slide that went with that one, it really leads into some of what will appear. I thought the additional information could be somewhat helpful. Now let's go back to the first part of that though. We've just appreciated that the sin unto death is a sin off which a person won't repent. So what if as you approach your brother or sister and you say, you know, what you're doing is not right. Suppose the person very happily says, 
I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. I'm thankful that you cared enough to let me know. I didn't understand that was wrong. I do want to be forgiven. Maybe the person says, Well, I did know that was wrong, but in a moment of weakness, I did it anyway. I do thank you for letting me know. I do want to do better. Either of those answers is fantastic. But it could be possible the person says, You know, this is none of your business. I don't care what you saw me do. I'm going to keep doing it. Now, that's a different story. At that point, that's a sin unto death. If the person won't repent of that, they're going to go to their grave lost. The sin unto death is a sin that the person won't repent of. A sin not unto death is one the person will repent of. It's all based on the attitude. It's all based on their reaction, their response. It is possible, isn't it, for a person to become arrogant and haughty and maybe not care what the Bible says. Well, in that position, that's a sin unto death. On the slide, no wonder we remember that God told Jeremiah three different times, three different times, don't you pray for these people. In fact, let's just note a couple of them. In Jeremiah 7, verse 16, He told them, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Why? Because in this state, their heart is hard. They may hear your words, but it's not going to make any difference to them. Don't you pray for them that they that they will be saved because that won't happen. Now, certainly, you can pray that their hearts might be softened. You can pray that they may come to a realization of what has been done and that things might be different. But don't you pray that they'll be saved in the state they're in. Second time in Jeremiah eleven fourteen, you'll note there are references. Jeremiah, don't you intercede for them. That's a powerful word, isn't it? Now, we know what intercession means, to act on behalf of another. So, Jeremiah, don't you petition me for their favor in the state they're in. Because right now, they, in essence, are in a sin unto death. It won't do any good. They've got to repent first. Third time. Jeremiah 14, 11. Jeremiah, don't pray for them in this state. But God mentions it particularly. Don't pray for their good. That is to say, the eternal good and blessing connected to being right with me because in this state it will not happen that way. Today, may I suggest, that's a powerful guide for you and me too, isn't it? When a person's not willing to repent, We can pray that their heart might be softened, that the truth might reach them. We can pray that they might come to realize the state in which they are, but we cannot pray that they'll be saved in their current position. That would not be consistent with the Word of God. They've got to repent first. Question number two builds upon some of that and asks this question. In 1 John 5, 16, what are some specific examples of a sin that does not lead to death. At this point, in light of our understanding and our knowledge so far gained tonight, that becomes an easy question to answer. Any sin of which a person is willing to repent is a sin not unto death. It could be anything, as long as the person is willing, in humility and in consideration and repentance, to approach it as God would have him or her to do it. 
What about question three? Would the first John five sixteen passage indicate that the sin not unto death should not be brought to the attention of the erring brother or sister, but instead should be prayed to the Lord privately on their behalf? As we've already learned, the answer is no. You can't just pray to God on their behalf. Whether it's a sin unto death or not unto death, you probably won't know until you actually confront them. It's their attitude of response that tells you the difference. If their heart is tender, if they're willing to appreciate the teaching of the Word of God, it is a sin not unto death. But if they're stubborn, obstinate, very much willing and intent to continue in the life that they're currently doing, then sadly, that's a sin unto death. Now at this point, you'll note again, John says, don't pray for them to be saved in that state. He said, I do not say you should ask for that kind of thing. In verse number 17, how did he wrap that discussion up? He said, all unrighteousness is sin. Isn't that what we just noted? Any unrighteousness then might well be the sin not unto death as long as the person's willing to repent of it. But by the same token, any unrighteousness may well be the sin unto death if the person is not willing to repent and to approach God with it. Now those questions were all connected to that idea and it's certainly a very interesting one. And as John develops it, there certainly is more that might be said from that book. But I thought at least in address to the questions, those things did justice to that part. Maybe some of the others will appear as we look carefully at chapters 3 and 4, especially at some other time and place. But the fourth question of the night is a whole different subject. It too is not a lengthy answer, it seems to me. But the question reads like this. What will the angels be doing at the day of judgment? So we know the day of judgment, of course, as the name implies, is a day on which you and I will be judged. But what will the angels be doing? We know, for instance, that Jesus will be the judge and God the Father will be, in essence, observing and reigning over it in His august presence. But what about the angels? Well, let's step through that like this. First of all, what about the angels in terms of their being? Based on Psalm 148, verse 5, it would appear that they were created beings. And based on Exodus 20, verse number 7 through 11, they were created during the six days that are mentioned on that occasion. That would suggest that they were created likely very early on day one. Probably the angels were created fairly early on day one. But with their presence and with their placement, Hebrews 1.14 tells us what their charge was and is. They are ministering spirits. That is to say, they do the bidding of the God of heaven. They carry out His efforts, His work, His will, whatever that happens to be. We are given a few glimpses in the Bible of ways they benefit the human family. But to be sure, all that we would like to know about that has not been revealed. But at the very least, we can say this. They were created with the ability to choose. They were not created as robots. Although they reside in the great places of the heavenlies, they were given the ability to choose. 
I say that because Second Peter 2.4 tells us some of them sinned. You can't sin unless you violate God's law. You can't sin unless you transgress God's will. And so they were given the ability to choose. Jude verse 6 even goes on to say that they left not their initial habitation. That leads us to note this. The angels were created with a hierarchy. Now, you and I know that the human family also understands hierarchy. In the family, the husband's the head of the wife. In the church, the elders have the authority. We understand that. It would seem that the angels were created in a hierarchy. There are lower echelons of angels and higher echelons of angels. We even realize that Gabriel, for instance on more than one occasion is recognized as a kind of archangel, or at least an angel of a higher standing. Be all that as it may, we now realize what will the angels be doing? May I suggest to you, they'll be judged just like we will. Let me say again, they're going to be judged just like us. Why do we say that? Let's read Second Peter 2 verse 4. Let's allow at least Peter's writing to at least bring us to appreciate the following. In that text, as Peter draws some conclusions again of benefit to us, in a side way, he points out something about angels. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment... They're going to be judged too. So not only you and me, but even the angels on that day will be judged in light of what the will of God for them was. But may I use this as an opportunity to say this, and this is perhaps a fine way to near the close of this lesson. When you and I sin, we have an avenue of forgiveness. We have a means whereby our sins can be taken care of. And you and I have already noted tonight what a blessing and what an honor and what a joyous thing that is on the part of God. We, you see, can be forgiven. Jesus died for us. He did not die for angels. Hear me well. The angels have no avenue of forgiveness. Those that sin already know they're headed to hell. There is no forgiveness. There never has been. Jesus didn't die for angels. Hebrews 2.14 teaches us that. That verse and the two that follow it say, Jesus did not die for angels. He died for us. Aren't you thankful then that you aren't consigned in the same way the angels were? That's why Peter's statement could carry such force. Look, the angels sin, but they are already reserved under judgment. There is nothing they can do about it. Jude tells us the same thing in Jude verse 6. As you and I close that lesson, we've looked at four questions tonight. And all four of those questions have been related to things connected to the sin unto death, the sin not unto death, or the disposition of the angels at judgment. But every one of them has painted a dramatic picture for you and me. First... It is so important to always have an attitude of tenderness with respect to the Word of God so that we never fall into a sin unto death. As long as we're willing to repent, every sin can be forgiven. 
no matter what we've done, what we've said, or how we may have done these things. By the same token, there's coming a day of judgment when not only we, but angels will be judged. And oh, what an occasion that'll be when the finality of all things become clear. Tonight, where do you and I stand? I trust that if we are ready to examine our life and find things inappropriate and things that are misfitting, that we'll make things right tonight. Jesus died that we might live. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He died that you and I might be such that our sins were carried by Him. 1 Peter 2 verses 21 to 24 It is such that you see. He died that you and I might one day be with Him. John 14, 2 and 3 So tonight, as you and I analyze our life, if all is not well, let us allow the Lord to make it so as we humbly come and do what He asks us. If you've become a wayward child of God, come back to your first love. Come back to the place in which you know you need to be and the Lord wants you to be. And always through life, may we live faithfully unto death, and a crown of life shall be ours. Revelation 2 verse 10. Tonight, if we could be of some assistance or help, this song of encouragement has been chosen, and we'd like to use this as a time of especial helpfulness, but please let us know the way we can do that while together we stand and sing.